Well, dear friends, I ask you now to please turn, direct your prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in 1 Corinthians and the 10th chapter. 1 Corinthians and the 10th chapter, we arrive this evening in verse 23, having spent several sermons or messages in this particular chapter. And we remember, as we thought, the first time we entered into this chapter, the context really is chapter 9 uh, from where we began our reading, verse 24, where the Apostle Paul is explaining how that he does not use his Christian liberty or his rights. When we speak of the rights, we understand that we are free men in Christ, that we are debtors to God's mercy, that we have a righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ. We as Christians do not seek to try to earn salvation. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. Christ is our righteousness. Christ has lived the life that we haven't lived, and he paid the debt of his people. He bore all of their sins in his body, and yet we are set free from the law, the condemning power of the law. In this sense, we're not under the law. In this sense, that we do not try to keep the law to earn a righteousness. As I've just said, Christ is our righteousness. But nonetheless, we are not those who say we have no need of the law. The law frames our life. It is said of old that the gospel... Indeed, the law sends us to Christ, sends us to the gospel of Christ, and the gospel sends us back to the law to frame our lives by it. But as we come to the law, remember we are not lawless. We have a law. It's the law to Christ now, Paul tells us. It's that same law. We serve the Savior through the hands of a Redeemer, and we're not our own. Paul tells us in Rome in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we were bought at a price. We belong to him. We are his people. And we are to serve him. We're not to use our freedoms now. Although, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody, because Christ has died. Yet we don't use that freedom to live how we want. We are saved to serve him. And Paul has been illustrating this since chapter 9, verse 23. In chapter 9, he used the example of how even to the Corinthian church, how he did not foist upon them even his God-given right as a minister to demand that they support him in the work, as he was, of course, a missionary, and even the one who began to establish the work here at Corinth. Remember how the Lord sent him there for 18 months. And by the grace of God, he continued there. Remember how in Corinth it was a, it was a perilous place, and he feared for his life. But the Lord said to him there in Acts 18, that he had many in that place. Fear not, Paul. Paul continued. And then the Lord raised up leaders in that church, and Paul was then able to move on. And then there were troubles soon after in the church at Corinth. There was a factious spirit 
There were many factions, there were many schisms in the church, and he will remind us of that in chapter 11. And Paul has been saying in chapter 9 that he has not ever used his liberty, even taken the right to take a wife and to be supported by the church and demanded it for the sake of others, lest he cause others to be suspicious. There were people who were suspicious of him. He was a true apostle, and a true apostle cares for the sheep. And he was concerned that he might cause some to stumble because he might be viewed as somebody just out for money, just out for the take. But that was not the heart of the Apostle Paul. He believed that God would provide all of his needs, as we will see and we'll read later on tonight from 2 Corinthians, how he robbed other churches for the sake of the church at Corinth so that they wouldn't stumble, so that they wouldn't fall, because he knew, as we will consider tonight, it's very easy to use your Christian liberty in a wrong way. So we'll pick up this evening in verse 24. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Now before we come there, I want to just rehash what we considered last week, because there's just a few other things to say. Paul, after having reasoned with the Corinthian church in chapter 9, how he was ruthless in his life, even to bring every member of his body into subjection, how he runs so as to win the prize, how he buffets his body, not as one that simply spars the air. You can imagine a pugilist or a boxer sparring the air, but he says, no, but I actually buffet my body, lest after I've preached to others, I'm a castaway. I'm rendered useless in the ministry. Every Christian has to live a disciplined life. We have to be careful how we use our liberty. And then he moved into the area of those in chapter 10. Remember the Israelites that came out of Egypt and uh, remember, the Israelites were meant to be a light to the Gentiles in the world. But God was not well pleased with them. They were given many great wonders and signs. They saw that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They had the tremendous privilege of drinking that water from the rock after Moses struck it. They saw tremendous signs. They all drank of that same spiritual rock. They all ate of that manna every day. They saw mighty miracles. They saw God's supernatural mercy, as it were, to them. It was a mercy that they were taken out of Egypt anyway. They were no better than the Egyptians. But despite all of that, they proved themselves, many of them, to be thankless because many of them were godless. Many of them never considered the things that were before them. That rock, he says, was Christ. It was indeed showing the mercy of God to a thankless people. They drank from that rock. They ate of that manna. They saw all of these things, and yet how thankless they were. And that thanklessness moved them to be murmuring 
And it moved them, as they murmured, it moved them on to be people that wanted to stone Moses to death. There was hatred, and eventually there was idolatry, as we thought, and as even we read in chapter 10. So what did God do? He, he destroyed them. All the males, 20 years old and up, fighting age, that entire generation, we're told, perished in the wilderness. Only two men who were with them, who were originally in Egypt to begin with, entered in. Joshua and Caleb. Not even Moses made it. Of course, Moses didn't murmur. But Moses, like us all, was a sinner. And if any man, as Paul says here, thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. These things, he says, are written for our example. And then he's already been talking, hasn't he? He moved on in verse 15 to address the fact or the, the ordinance of the, the Lord's table. It is called an ordinance, as we will see in chapter 11. How he says in verse 2, to keep the ordinances, chapter 11, verse 2. And these people, as we thought in the Old Testament, they all were baptized unto Moses as they went into the Red Sea. Their obedience, they all drank from that spiritual rock. And he drew from those two wonderful supernatural experiences that they saw and felt with the parallel of the Lord's table. Those are blessings in and of themselves. And then he says in verse 15, he says, I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Now they, they saw water coming from the rock, didn't they? They saw the manna from heaven, those things typifying ultimately Christ. And then he draws that parallel with what we do now in the New Testament after Christ shed his blood, after he gave his body for the church, and he says this, the cup of blessing, verse 16, we thought, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The word there, communion, and he uses it with respect to the blood of Christ and also the body of Christ. He speaks twice, he uses the word communion twice there. And I want to just pick up on this as we move on. Communion, first of all, implies a peculiar presence. You can't have communion with somebody unless that person is actually present. Now, as I mentioned last time, we come to the Lord's table, and for us it's a memorial, it's not a funeral, and we're not putting Christ to death. But Christ is present not as the Roman Catholics teach, in a fleshly sense, because that's what they teach, and I'm not saying that, but he is really present here by his Spirit when we take the table. As we will think, communion implies presence. Remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, and that can also be applied not only to church discipline, but every time we meet, he is there in the midst. 
Now that word communion, where we read it there in verse 16, 15 and 16, uh, 16 the communion of the blood of Christ then, and he speaks of the, the communion of the body of Christ. That word communion really has to do with presence. It's the same. We read, if you turn to Exodus 25, 22, with regards and with respects to the mercy seat. Remember in the tabernacle, as Moses was given instruction about the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid, the shittim wood overlaid with gold, and there over the Ark were the cherubim, and the priest would sprinkle seven times over the Ark the blood of the Lamb. And what does the Lord say? He will be there. But look at the word used. Exodus 25, verse 22, And there will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee. You see, notice the word order there. It says, I will meet with thee. The Lord is actually, there was a, a real sense of his presence. The Spirit of God was there. And in the same way, and in a peculiar way, the Spirit of God is present where his people meet, and there will I commune with thee. Now, as I said, this is not a, when we come to the Lord's table, and this is very different uh, to the way that the Catholics would celebrate it. It's not a fleshly presence of Christ, as the Catholics teach, but it's his spirit. Remember what he said, I will send another, and his spirit is with us. It's the Holy Spirit of Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 9, he speaks of the Spirit of Christ, which is the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit. Matthew 18, 20, he said, Did he not, where two or three are gathered in my name, lo, am I there in the midst? So first of all, it speaks of his presence. And then communion also implies agreement. You agree with another party, with another person. You can't commune. We, we know from Amos 3.3, can two walk together except they be agreed? So it implies God is with us and he's communing with us. And God would commune there with his people above the mercy seat because blood was sprinkled, because propitiation for sin was met for the sinner. And then God will commune with his people. Because his wrath is placated. It was a picture. And God has peace. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the Lord can't be present. And he's going to be speaking here as we thought about God cannot commune with those who have friendship with idolaters and who partake in the things of the terrible heathen practices. And if we have association with those things, he says you, you can't drink the cup of devils and the cup of Christ. The Lord can't be with the people who have grieved his spirit. It's true at the Lord's table. We think, for instance, of the church there at Corinth. In chapter 5, remember how they, they had somebody in church membership who had taken his father's wife. And the Holy Spirit was grieved. 
And Paul said that you are defiling it. He said you're meant to be unleavened bread. And then he said you have, you have to take out the leaven so that you be a new lump. He said these things ought never to be. And he said in chapter 5, verse 5, he said, Deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And then notice, therefore let us keep the feast. Not with old leaven. He is referring to the Lord's table. There was only one feast. And they weren't keeping it properly because they were allowing for this leaven of sin to be tolerated as a church. They weren't dealing with the sin in the church. They were turning a blind eye to it. Now, again, in the next chapter, if you look at chapter 11 here, in the verse 17, he has to strongly admonish this church because many were actually going to the Lord's table. Some were even drunk, inebriated with alcohol, and coming to the Lord's table. Terrible. How can, how can you come and even think about what Christ has done? If your body is full of alcohol and you can't think straight and you're dishonoring and you've, eat, you've eaten at the end of their feasts, the Lord's table was kind of like an appendage, like a last minute thought, well, we'll sit down and we'll have the Lord's table now. It was like a last minute think, thing. And he said, when you come together in the church, he tells us, I hear there's divisions among you, verse 17 and verse 18. I partly believe it. And then he speaks about heresies. And then he says in verse 20, When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You come for the wrong reason. And then when you do, you don't discern the Lord's body. And then he tells us in verse 29, he says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation unto himself, not discerning the Lord's body, and then he says this in verse 30, For this cause, for this reason, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. The Lord, our God, is a jealous God, as we thought last time. And if he's provoked to anger, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Something else, this communion also implies mutual interest. When we come to the Lord's table, we are concerned for his glory, his kingdom, the honor of his name. And Christ loves his people. He wants to bless his people. He wants to bless them in every way, to strengthen them spiritually. And we not only receive but he receives praise when we come to the table, doesn't he? His name is on it, and we renew our hearts in him. So in this communion, there is a mutual interest, and there's a, something else. There is, it means giving and receiving, partaking. Revelation 3.19, you think of the church there at Laodicea that was cold. 
neither cold nor hot. It was lukewarm. And he said this. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. It's a giving, it's a receiving, it's, it's communion. That's why he uses the word here. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Do we not receive and do we not reciprocate our love to Christ? And we feed upon him. When we come to the table, what do we do? We bring our sin. He gives us his pardon. He gives us his mercy. When we come to the table, we come full of emptiness. We feel our wretchedness. And what does he do? He shows us his righteousness. And he blesses us with the riches of his grace. When we come, we come to be joined with the Lord. He brings us blessings. We come with all of our sorrow. We come with our praise, though, and he gives us blessings. So there's a, a wonderful reciprocation, isn't there? We are joined to the Lord, friends, by one spirit. And this is the difference. As I said, you see, the Catholics, when they come to the table, they come looking for flesh. But we come being joined by one spirit to the body of Christ. If you just look at chapter 6, verse 17. He has joined us. This is, when we come to the table, it's spiritual. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. We are joined by his spirit. And if you look at chapter 12, verse 12. For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now notice, for by one Spirit are we baptized into one body. It's by the Spirit of God. And so what we do as we come together, it's not a fleshly thing, it's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual exercise. And this is how we can easily provoke God into anger when we just go through the motions of coming to the table. And there's no discernment. There's no spiritual exercise. There's no considering like the people that did not escape God's wrath in the wilderness. They drank of that spiritual rock, but they didn't discern. They didn't think, and they were never thankful. We don't even deserve the physical water. They weren't discerning the spiritual, the mercy that God had shown them. Every day when the manna fell, they never discerned. And this is why, if you look at verse 17 to 22, as we thought last time, one can provoke God to anger when we treat sin and even idolatry carelessly. He says in verse 18, Behold Israel after the flesh. He goes back. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What is he doing? With those 
Old Testament and even now. He moves on to idolatry. What say then that the idol is anything? He's speaking about the idol in his day. We saw this last time. Or they which offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? He's already told us, hasn't he, in chapter 8, that an idol is nothing. But, notice what he says, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils. There's a spiritual world. Those idols are nothing, they're just sticks, they're stones. But there is a real demonic, evil, spiritual activity. You need to be very careful of that. They sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. He's saying be very, very careful. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord, verse 21, and the cup of the devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Even in this day, Paul is living in, remember there was the goddess Diana, there were the Greek mythological gods, there was Venus, there was Apollo, there was Zeus, all these, they, of course they're nothing. But Satan is behind them all. Satan's behind them all. Behind all those idols. And you think, I was looking, thinking about the Hindu goddesses, there's at least nine of them. They're all evil spirits behind them to delude men's minds. All of these propagated by men to try to steal the hearts of men from God. And even Satan wants you to believe that he's a little red devil with a fork. But he's much more than that. He is a powerful, evil spirit. It's no small thing when the Archbishop of Canterbury arranges these interfaith gatherings, because as they bow down to idols, they are bowing and rendering to evil spirits. It's no small thing. It's real, it's demonic. And I say this, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, they're all worshipping Satan. They think that they're worshipping the true, the living God. But Satan is behind all of that. And it really reflects the utter apostasy of our nation. And the apostasy of the so-called church in this our land. Paul here is making very clear that those who worship idols, it's not nothing. It's satanic. It's not mere fantasy, it's demonic. He says, I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. It's that serious. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Yes, we know an idol's nothing, but you must realize that Satan, the archenemy, the prince of the power of the air, that now works in the sons of disobedience, is behind all of this terrible activity. And he says in verse 22, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Think about it. 
in the spiritual realm, you who are wise, you who are spiritual, discern. Don't just go through the motions of things. And even when you come to the table, discern that God had to become flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. He took to himself bone of our bones, flesh of our flesh, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He's saying, really, don't compromise with the world. And don't have fellowship with those who associate with things of darkness. Rather, reprove them. Show them up for what they really are, these things. Friendship with the world, my friend, is evil. We might try to, and this is, I'm afraid, the so-called, so much of the so-called state church in all of its political correctness today, trying to get alongside these other religions. It doesn't work. It's wrong. These interfaith meetings, they are blasphemous, utterly blasphemous. Friendship with the world, James tells us, is enmity with God. He says in James 4, 3, James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, he says, Ye ask and you receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. He says, Ye are adulterous and adulteresses. Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now we move to verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Now what we'll have from the verse 24 to the end of this chapter is really one great theme. Whatever we do is to be done for the glory of God. He's really in verse 23, if you look at it, He's returning us back to the subject which he began in chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful unto me, he says there, but all things are not expedient. He's saying, look again, you as a Christian, you have liberty in Christ. You have freedom. You're not under the condemning power of the law. Christ has answered the law for you in terms of of your judgment. He has taken judgment for you. You're not under the, the fear and the terror of the law now. But not all things are expedient. He says here, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. But all things edify not, he says also. Now just again, let's think on this. When he says this, all things are lawful. Now, there's an implied limitation here, of course. All things are lawful. All th lawful things are lawful again. All rightful things. But not to excess and not any time you want to do them. Remember, we're speaking about Christian liberty here. You can eat anything. All food. Peter... Say nothing is unclean, Peter. All things are lawful. Excess is wrong. To be a glutton 
to be a drunk is wrong. Going back to the heathen temple, that's not lawful. When he says all things are lawful, it's not lawful to, to worship an idol. Is it? It's not lawful to worship. It's not worship to commit fornication, to commit uncleanness. I mean, it would be ridiculous to suggest that you can do anything now. You can sin, that grace may abound. No, God forbid. What he means is anything legitimate you can do. Drunkenness and gluttony is not lawful. Schism, trouble in the church is not lawful. Limitation, obviously, here is implied. Paul, when he writes to Titus in Titus 2.9, he says, concerning slaves and masters, he says, exhort servants to be, to be obedient unto their masters, to please them in all things. But does that mean when the master says, work on the Lord's day, you work on the Lord's day? No. If he asks you to sin, you say No but in all things permissible, in all things that God has granted. Of course, it's implied, isn't it? Now, it's the same, he moves us now to verse 24 and verse 25 when he speaks to meat sold in the marketplaces. You can eat all of this. You can eat pork, you can have lobster, you can have what you want. You're not a Jew under the ceremonial law now. You are free. But sometimes, and this is what he's going to get at, sometimes it is necessary to forfeit the freedom that you have for the benefit of others. Notice verse 24. Let no man seek his own. Not your own interest, my friend. You seek the interest, but every man, others' wealth. He speaks of wealth here means that person's interest, that person's concern, their well-being. That's the Christian life. You seek the well-being of somebody else, the betterment of somebody else. I mentioned the example of pork before. Imagine we had a Jewish man come in the church. He started to come along. He's not converted. He's not a Christian. Uh, yet, maybe the Lord will save him. We don't know. The Lord saves his people, but the man's coming along. And we invite him for lunch. Is it a good idea to give that man pork? No. Not until he comes to understand, at least. Wouldn't be expedient, would it? Look at verse 25. Whatsoever sold in the shambles. Now, the word there, shambles, is the Greek word makalon. It's where we get the word market from. Whatever is sold in the marketplace, that eat. Eat it. You, as a Christian, you can eat it. Asking no question for conscience sake. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What he's saying is don't be overly scrupulous when you go to the market and be asking uh, and trying to hunt down, you know, where's this come from? Look for the farm, look for the place, look and see. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's. The giver of this animal or whatever it is, is from God. That's what he's saying. Don't be overly scrupulous. 
the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, these things are clean in and of themselves. He says, whatever is sold in the shambles, that eat. It's a command. You can do it. Eat it. Take it. But asking no question, why? For conscience sake. You, he's saying, can rack your brain silly as a Christian if you're not careful. You can bring yourself to despair. You take, he says, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. And so this is right. One's conscience, one's spirit, can become defiled if we knowingly, however, and deliberately partake of something that is offered to demons. He says, you must remember that the ultimate source is from the Lord. Now, when Mount Vesuvius erupted, I think it was AD 74, Pompeii was completely destroyed by volcanic lava. And they found from many excavations that right next to these places, these, these places where idols were offered, were the butchers right next door. And so the idol was offered there, and very often it was taken straight to the butchers next door and sold. So very often a lot of those were just offered. Sometimes animals were just taken there. They weren't necessarily offered to the idols, but they were taken there nonetheless to the butchers. Now I can give you an example. Imagine here we live in England. I don't know how many people would go to the fruit and veg shop, but you could do, say for instance. And you could go in and ask their will, because the Tesco's run out. You've gone to Tesco, you've gone to Sainsbury's, you've gone to all these other places looking, and they've run out of uh, carrots. So you go to the one place and you ask him, were those carrots? I see they, they're nice carrots, but where are they from? And you start asking, do you know if that fruit was picked on the Lord's Day? You know, where do you stop with all of this? You see, you, you, the point is this. Don't be utterly scrupulous over this matter. Be sensible for conscience sake. Because you drive yourself mad. Remember at the end of the day, the earth is the Lord's. The divine origin of that vegetable or that animal is from God. Therefore it's okay. So don't, don't make yourself sick. But there's another application here. Look at verse 27. And this applies to eating out. You've been invited to a feast with an unbeliever. And if any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, so you've, you've gone, you're with some people, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. Now, sadly, this is denied by a number of sects who would say that they're Christian, and they probably are Christians among them. But they, they completely deny what Paul is saying here. 
Some of the brethren, I think some of the Plymouth brethren, and some of the brethren, they won't sit down with you unless you're even part of their, as it were, community, and they won't sit and they won't eat with you. But Paul here is saying very clear, even look if an unbeliever asks you to his house or asks you somewhere, eat with him, it's not wrong. This is fine. And he says, when you're given the food, don't ask even where it came from. Don't ask who cooked it. Was the person who cooked it a believer? And the person who carved it, were they a believer? You, you know, one can go to great excess. But Paul says, look, don't ask. Here is an opportunity for you to sit with people and to witness for the Lord and to speak concerning the Lord who gave all these things richly and freely to enjoy. And you don't ask questions. You, you sit, you enjoy the meal and make the most of it. Of course, you, you don't be a glutton. and You be a good witness. But there's another example. Here's an example. If you go out for a meal with a weak or young believer who's not strong in the faith, brother and you're sitting down and you're eating and then all of a sudden he mentions there in verse 28 he mentions he's just talked to somebody sitting next to him or it's heard the waiter say that was offered to idols and he puts down his knife and his fork he says I can't eat I can't partake of this what do you do he says you don't eat but if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it. The man was startled. I can't eat this. Can you believe it? He's saying to you, this was offered to an idol. We shouldn't be touching this. He's worried. He's concerned that he's going to offend God. For conscience sake, he says, don't eat it. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Even that brother is the Lord's. And you don't want to offend him. And he is one for who Christ died. You don't want to offend him. And so he adds in verse 29, notice, Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other, for his conscience. For why is my liberty judged? of another man's conscience. What is he saying here? Notice, well, he's saying, in effect, what is the point of my liberty, my freedom, my Christian liberty? If I sinfully use my liberty so carelessly so as to destroy my brother, will it be for the praise of God? It'll only bring God's judgment on me. Won't it? It'll only bring God's condemnation. And worst of all, not only God's condemnation, but... I will cause my brother to stumble for the sake of my liberty. How foolish. Verse 30, For if I by the grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? I gave thanks for that food, but everybody is now pointing a finger at me. I am a cause of stumbling for my brother. If I partake to the ruin of my brother's conscience, and for the stumbling in his life, 
And in his walk, he, seeing me as a more mature believer, and he thinking I'm sinning against God, what good is that? It's no good at all, is it? So in light of all of that, look at verse 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, don't do it for your glory. Your whole life, my whole life is to be done for God's glory. Not thinking about myself. Paul is saying, don't be taken up with yourself, but be taken up with God's glory. Be taken up with what is right. Don't be taken up with your Christian rights. But do it for God's glory. The glory of God. It's the most important thing, isn't it? We were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The glory of God. He's saying, really, you have a much higher aim to achieve than your pleasure, than exercising even your freedoms. What is it? It's God's glory. And there's no greater example than that, than Christ. Who we're told in Romans 15, who pleased not even himself when he could have. He could have called down legions of angels in the garden, but he didn't. He chose not to for the sake of his elect. He says, verse 32, give none offense, neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Don't give offense. Don't cause anyone to stumble. Even as I please all men in all things. He's not saying I'm all things to all men. We've covered this before. But what he's saying is, look, I do what is right for others, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Now, when he uses the word saved here, he doesn't mean a man might be converted, that a man might be born again, but a man might be saved from destruction. A man might be saved from stumbling, from falling, because of my carelessness, because of my selfishness. That's what he means that a mind might be saved. Remember what he said in chapter 8, verse 11? And through thy knowledge shall thy weak brother perish for whom Christ died. What he means there by perish, the man's going to fall, he's going to stumble, he's going to struggle because you are living such a poor example. That's what he's saying. Well, the Apostle Paul is a great example to us all, isn't he? how he served. We should serve. The greatest example, of course, as I said, is Christ. You think of Paul, he, he forfeited all his rights, as I said earlier, as an apostle, to take money. He said in verse 13 of chapter 9, Do ye not know that they which minister about the holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait on the altar are partakers of the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel, but Paul never stood on his right. He never demanded it. In fact, as I said earlier, if you look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8, look what he says to this church. He says there, 
in his second epistle, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. Isn't that amazing? You see why? Because he saw these people right now as weak brethren. That's what they were. You know, it's often the case there'll be a young believer who's saved. And often he has very low views of others. Why? Because he's been in the world, hasn't he? Unsaved. But here's the thing. What the weak brethren ought to see is Christ's likeness in us. Us dying to self. Us living like Paul. Saying, you know what, I went without. And others, I relied on them for your sake. So that in due time you might understand. In due time you might come to see these things. What about the Lord Jesus, as I said? Look at him there in the garden. Paul tells us, does he not, in Romans, he's already got off speaking in Romans 14 about the weak brother there and how you don't cause the weak brother to stumble because of food. And then he says in chapter 15, 1, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. And then he says, let every one of you, us, please his neighbor for his good to edification. That's to build the person up. For even Christ pleased not himself. For as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Now think of it as we close. Christ, when he came to this world, though he was God, he humbled himself became obedient, took to himself bone of our bones, flesh of our flesh, humbled himself, even unto death. Paul said, let this mind be in you also, which was in Christ Jesus. This is the spirit of every true Christian, isn't it? We want to honor God. Paul was free to do many things. But you know, God has set us free to love and to be loved. To love God's people. We are his people. He purchased us with his own blood. And let us lay down our lives for the brethren. And let us be a great witness, friends, to the watching world. And never give cause that any might blaspheme the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.